So I was going to do lots of introduction and lots of caveats around what I'm not. And I was going to tell you things like, I'm not a theologian and I've not been to Bible college. And then God said, just stop and just tell them who you are. So I'm Amy and I am my father's daughter. Um, and I stand before you tonight as a father's daughter. And that means I'm nervous. And that means I'm a little bit excited. That means I come before you honestly and openly. And hopefully in that place of honesty and openness, I get to talk to you about one of my absolute all-time favorite things to talk about, which is Jesus. Um, bit of background, I am a teacher. I have taught for over 20 years. I'm an English teacher. And actually when I came back to church, into this church, there was a day when I came to the front and I kind of closed my eyes and I said, this is it, God, now I'm back in church. I can leave teaching. Tell me what you want me to do. And he went, well, you're a teacher, teach. And I thought, oh, no. Because I was kind of thinking maybe I was done teaching. But I kind of have accepted as his daughter that that's kind of integral to who he's made me to be. So I stand you here, a teacher, but I usually teach quite differently to this. I have a classroom of 30 kids that I've known for a while. I have a lot of less props. Like when you say to Jeff, yes, I'll come and um, talk on an evening. He didn't tell me at the time that there would be props and books. I kind of just thought it'd be a lot simpler. So as I negotiate my right way around, be patient. But just mentioning that um, moment actually where Jeff invited me to speak, I didn't know whether to share it and then God said, well, be honest. And I love when he's really clear like that and said, just be honest. So I walk a lot around Devonport Park with my two dogs and it's a place where I often just pray and talk to God about what's going on with me. And I've lost my mum, as many of you know, Sandy. Um, that's over two years ago now, but I still sometimes wrestle with God about that loss. And one day he was just saying to me, and this is why it was important that I told you I am my father's daughter, he said, just tell me what you want. Now, if God ever says that, you're like, oh my gosh, that's like an open doorway, surely. And before I could even think, the spirit in me went, I want to teach on a Sunday night. Like, put it back in quick. Why did I say that in my prayer? I didn't even know where that had come from. But I'd said to God in that moment of honesty that I would like to teach on a Sunday evening. I think because I've been working with children and I just love Jesus and I love working with them. But I kind of wanted to talk to grown-ups about Jesus as well. And then Jeff had no knowledge of that. And it was a Sunday morning and I was leaving out the door and he said, Amy, just a minute. He said, I'd like you with this inspired season to come and do a Sunday evening. So guys, you're kind of receiving God's gift to me tonight. So this was the gift that God gave me. So no matter what happens, if I trip over wires, if balls, books fall over, if I forget my, where I am in my script and I panic because I'm running out of time, Actually, it doesn't really matter because I am my father's daughter and this is his gift to me. Um, and just on the other side of that, Jesus is his gift to you. So when Jeff said, do you want to speak? And I said, yes, he said, okay, you're going to be speaking. He emailed me a little bit. He said, okay, this is the topics. You've got Jesus and the gospels. And I'm like, huh. right, English teacher, I'm straight in Dickens. It was the worst of times. It was the best of times. That's like the best of topics and the worst of topics because how can I in 30 minutes... When I talk too much anyway, really talk to you in all the glorious fullness that Jesus deserves to be talked about, talk to you about Jesus. So 
I was like, ah. Oh. And then actually every evening when I've been here all morning, I'm like, they're stealing my material because everyone stood here going, it's all about Jesus. And this is why it's about Jesus. And I'm like, no, no, that was meant to be mine. <sighs> so there might be some repetition. There might be some tripping. There might be some falling books. But I am my father's daughter and this is his gift to me. So I was then praying about this evening and talking to the Holy Spirit about how to tell this story. And actually then I was listening to a Jeremy Riddle song and it says, all, you know, wrap me up in his story, all is for his glory. And I kind of said, well, I can do that. I can push myself aside and tell you the story of Jesus in a way that's for his glory. And then because God speaks and I believe he speaks and sometimes I wish he didn't speak to me so much through social media because I'm trying to get off it a little bit. But as I was thinking about the topic tonight, two things came up on my social, oh, I was going to pray first, sorry, so I'll on my social media feed that kind of got me to think about tonight. So I'm going to lead us first of all in an inspired prayer. So I have been doing this on the Sunday mornings um, with the children because my daughter said, mum, you can't speak to them like you speak to the children. And I said, maybe, okay, maybe not. But sometimes there's something I do with the kids and I think we need that as grown-ups. So with the inspired series on a Sunday morning, I have been using an inspired prayer, which is where I've taken the theme of the week and it's been the prayer that me and the children have begun our sessions with. So I have got it on a slide. I'm not saying you have to say it out loud with me, but just as I pray this over us, you know, if you want to, just give me a nice big loud amen at the end. So, because I just think, yeah, I just want to do this prayer first. Okay. So, dear Jesus, Alpha and Omega, we declare that we need the wisdom that only Holy Spirit gives so that we can understand that in the beginning and the end, Jesus is majestic, he is glorious, he is divine, he is fully God and fully man. Father God, we recognize that we need knowledge and reverential fear of this glorious divinity, of Jesus' majestic kingship, of his awesome power and of his authority. We say tonight a big yes to receiving the revelation of this King Jesus. So that when we have come out of exile and the momentum of movement and self-centeredness stops, we can pause and be still long enough to imagine and sit in this truth. King Jesus chose to give up his majesty for us. And we thank you that this moment, the moment of all moments, where King Jesus yielded in obedience to the Father, laid aside your majesty, stepped down into creation, is the moment when you, Jesus, chose to humble yourself making yourself nothing so that you might give us everything. And I kind of thought, sorry, amen. And I thought, if I got that prayer done at the front, whatever I don't cover, that prayer kind of summarizes what I really just wanted us to understand as we begin to think about Jesus in the gospels and where that sits in our story. And then I went back to social media. So when I said I was going to do this, several things started popping up on my social media accounts. Now, as I said, um, I love Towser um, and Timothy Keller, so I follow them on social media. Social media can be redeemed for good. Yep, just check who you follow. And I just thought these were two things that as I was thinking about talking to you tonight about Jesus and his narrative that really hit home for me. So the first one, The Light to Live By, by A.W. Towser said, the Bible was called forth by the moral emergency occasioned by the fall of man. 
It is the voice of God calling men home from the wilds of sin. It is a roadmap for returning prodigals. It's instruction in righteousness, light in the darkness, information about God and man and life and death and heaven and hell. In it, God warns, commands, rebukes, promises, encourages. In it, he offers salvation and life through his eternal son. And the destiny of each one depends upon the response he or she makes to the voice of the word. Because the Bible is this kind of book, there can be no place for the attached appraising attitude in our approach to it. Oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. God's word is not to be enjoyed as one might a Beethoven symphony or a poem by Wordsworth. It demands immediate action, faith, surrender, committal. Until it has secured these, it has done nothing positive for the reader, but has increased his responsibility and deepened the judgment that must follow. And Timothy Keller, in a much more succinct, but really making a similar point, there are, in two, there are in the end only two ways to read the Bible. It's basically about me or basically about Jesus. In other words, is it basically about what I must do or basically about what he has done? And as I read those two in tandem, it caught me at this point. It demands immediate action, faith, surrender, committal. Until the word has secured these things, it's done nothing positive for the reader. And so I was thinking about trying to create a bridge for us this evening from the Old Testament into the gospel. And all I could see through those two social media voices was God saying, choose me, choose me. Let me be chosen that I might change you. And so when we think about the Old Testament, the Old Testament really tells the story. And it's the voice of God saying over and over, choose me. And then when we get to the Gospels, we suddenly hear the beautiful voice of Jesus saying, I choose you. So guys, when I was just thinking about this, time to interact with the props. Okay, so Old Testament, the choose me moments. So if we think about Genesis, the voice of God said to Adam and Eve, choose me. But choice in God's kingdom, choice in God's um, like way of speaking, choice does come with, not caveats, but he says, when you choose me, you're going to choose to follow me, to love me. And to Adam and Eve, he said, choose me. Choose not to eat of that tree. Choose me. Choose not to look at what you don't have. Choose to look at me. And we know that Adam and Eve, in the moment of weakness and sin, chose differently. And then we think about Exodus and the choosing me moment when God appeared to Moses in a bush and he said, choose to look at me. Here I am. I'm on fire for you. Choose me. And Moses actually chose to turn away from what he was doing, the work of the field, and he came close. And that began a relationship with God in which Moses chose him. And then in that choice, God took Moses and empowered him to lead the people out of Israel. And then in Deuteronomy, God again said to his people, choose me. And he actually said it as distinctly as this. I set today before you life and death. When God says, choose me, he says, choose life. Choose me. I command you today, love the Lord your God to walk in obedience to him. And so God begins in the narrative of the Old Testament to explain what choosing him looks like. Yes, it looks like obedience. Yes, it looks like decrees and laws, but it looks like a choice that says this is life and it is good. But we know 
because of the story that we've been hearing as we've moved through the Old Testament, that those choices didn't always yield the immediate yes of a people who could be hard-hearted and rebellious. In 1 Kings, we got the dramatic demonstration where we call, um, where Ezekiel, sorry, it, where Elijah, you know, took on the prophets of Baal. And in his demonstration of power, and God came down in flames and destroyed the altar, burned it to a crisp. And Elijah said, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And in that demonstration, God said, this is what it looks like to choose me. I come in power. Two chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will choose me. And then I love David in the Psalms, David in his story, he chose God even when it was undignified. When he danced before the ark as it was coming in through the streets, he danced a king in his underwear because sometimes choosing God looks undignified. Sometimes choosing God looks like the dis disapproval of somebody overlooking to see your choice for God as being the wrong thing or they hold it against you. But David chose to become even more undignified even though his wife sat in judgment. Jonah, did I get Jonah out? Jonah. Jonah chose and then chose again. <laughs> so Jonah chose when God was saying, choose me to run away. And it only took getting swallowed in by a fish for three days for him to make the right choice. But all the time, God is saying to his people in the Old Testament, choose me. Job chose to praise the Lord, even though he slayed him. Daniel chose, even when Nebuchadnezzar said, if you choose to worship your God, there are consequences. And Daniel chose God. He said yes to God saying, choose me. And so the narrative of the Old Testament is of a God who asks us to choose him. But sadly, it's also of a people who do not always do so. They choose instead exile through choices of rebellion, self-centeredness, hard-heartedness, idolatry, and other choices that come from a sin nature. But yet, if we look again at the Old Testament, and if we look like Tim Keller's little um, tweet reminded us through the lens of God and through the lens of Jesus, what we actually see is that the Old Testament isn't just about the bad choices we make, but it's about the revelation of a God that inspires ordinary men to make extraordinary choices, to say yes to him even when it takes them into the fire, to say yes to him even when it takes them into exile. And so the prophets of the Old Testament speak and seek to describe the worthiness of God. They shout out loud, some of them, again, in underwear, lying on their sides, one of the prophets, I think, for such, you know, for 40 days, that he is the Lord, worship him. And so we learn through the story of the Old Testament who God is, good, loving, kind, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in mercy, radiantly beautiful and fair. But also we learn that he is holy and he is righteous. He is just and he is judge. He is mysterious and a God whose ways are not our ways. And so by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, it ends as just so beautifully explained in a way that really stuck with me last week on this unresolved chord. As the Messiah was still not yet 
appearing as he was still expected. The final verses of Malachi kind of offered a temporary appendix, but not yet resolution. They remind us that the Torah and the prophets of the Old Testament are a unified story that points to a future. They remind us that Israel was redeemed by a God who constantly tells them through the Old Testament, I have chosen you, I have loved you. And yet through the narrative of the Old Testament, we see that wrestle, that struggle as rebellion and hard-heartedness breaking the laws of the Torah. But still the scripture anticipates the future day, the day we're about to come to, when God was going to send a new prophet to restore God's people and heal their hearts. So scripture remains this divine gift that we get to read, ponder and pray together as it tells us the truth about our human condition, our selfishness, our sin. But that it also announces over and over loud and in a way that we cannot ignore that God is a God who keeps his promise. And he will send a messenger that will show up to confront evil and to restore his people and bring his healing justice. And so as the Old Testament closes on the unresolved chord of a God still saying to his people, choose me, the Gospels begin with a resolution and the voice of Jesus. And a voice of Jesus who speaks and says, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. And a voice of Jesus, though, that says, It is finished, for I, Jesus, have chosen you. Okay, but it's not enough for me to retell the story of the Gospels. Um, Because we know the story of the Gospels. I've been teaching Sunday school long enough to know that we tell those stories of the Gospels, that they are, if you like, our foundation stones. And so I don't want to retell a story that's familiar and we get to tick off a box that says we've talked about the Gospels again, but I would love to invite you to think about the Gospels in a new way. And in order to do that, I am just going to ask that you indulge me for one more minute because when I was thinking about tonight, what I love about the Gospels is that when we encounter Jesus in his humanity, we have to understand his divinity and the majesty that he gave up to do so. So I just want to take us very briefly back to the beginning and to the end. Now, as an English teacher, my students think I'm mad because I'll always tell them I read the end of every book I've ever written, read, not written any yet. And they're like, why do you read the end? And I'm kind of like, because a good narrative, a good story, it's not how it's ending, it's how we get there. Great stories for me. You can tell me the end, and if it's a good enough story, I love it because I want to know how we get there. So I don't ever mind reading the last few pages of the book. So guys, I'm just going to read to you um, from Genesis chapter 1. Um, 26. Now, what I just want to frame here then is that we need to think about Jesus in terms of his divinity and his majesty. So we really appreciate that when the gospels become part of this story, we understand what he has given up. So when we think about Jesus in Genesis, we don't often think about Jesus sometimes in Genesis, but in Genesis 126, 
God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. Now again, the English teacher and me could talk to you about pronouns, singular pronouns, plural pronouns. Trust me, it's not that exciting but it's necessary sometimes for understanding. And that let us is what we call the plural pronoun. It is not accidental. As we've been learning through this, the word is inspired by God. So it's never accidental. And that is a deliberate plural because right from the beginning, God is saying and reminding us that in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we hear about God in his role in the Old Testament, loving kindness, compassion, slow to anger, within that Godhead is Jesus. So when the prophets and the Psalms speak about the God who flung the stars into the sky and created the heavens, that is Jesus. In all his majesty, all his divinity, he occupied an equal place with God. And yet we know that he says he did not see equality with God, something to be grasped, but that he gave it up to make himself the very nature of a servant in human likeness. That he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even on a cross, because he loved us that much. Because he chose you that much. And yet, when we look at the end of the story, Jesus, our Alpha and the Omega, we see his majesty restored. And in Revelation 1, we see that it literally tells us what our Jesus looks like. And sometimes we struggle to imagine the physicality of Jesus. What does Jesus look like? Jeff spoke this morning about imagination. We have imagination because God wants to sanctify our ability to see the unseen, to see Jesus. And when you read Revelation 1, imagine as I read to you this Jesus. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And that image of Jesus is so important that in Revelation 19, we get it again. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes like blazing fire and on his head and many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, why did I want to go to the beginning and the end when we've got so much to cover in the Gospels? Because our full understanding of his majesty and divinity can only deepen our understanding of how much he loved us. Because when we experience the divinity and majesty of Jesus at the beginning and the end of the story, we can only become more humble, more gracious as we realize what he has done for us. A full understanding of all that he is and therefore all that he gave up so that he could die and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So in the Gospels, we are given the full revelation of Jesus in all his humanity as he tells us, I have chosen you. The four Gospels themselves, with gospel meaning, you know, God's story, and it comes from the Greek word meaning good news, cannot announce more clearly that this is the climax. Now, we sometimes think that climax means the end of the story, but actually in story structures, the climax is the high point. After the climax of the story, we have falling resolution that leads to the conclusion. So this climax of the Gospels is not the end, but the end of the story, the end that, gives us, that is given to us in Revelation is determined by this moment. We could have no revelation, no victory if Jesus did not give up for his divinity and his majesty because you and I were that valuable to him. The good news of the Gospels, and it is good news, coming out of exile, coming out of 400 years of waiting, is that Jesus is God's mercy that triumphs over judgment. Jesus is in the Gospels, is the loud and powerful declaration of truth that we get to choose a God who says, God gave. God gave. God gave. From the Old Testament to the New, we get to choose a God that gives and doesn't withhold. We get to say yes to a God who gives and doesn't withdraw. Everything that God has given us, everything that he has yet to give us, is a promise kept and paid by Jesus that you and I do not have to pick up the tab for, do not have to pick up the debt for. And so the Gospels are such an important source of understanding of Jesus' humanity. Each one a portrait of his humanity slightly adapted for different audiences. And yes, we have to acknowledge the context of the Gospels that they take us back to a different time. Not good at mass, we'll just say many, many years ago. And in them we see his life and his ministry so that we might get a fully drawn picture of that humanity. And as we read the Gospels... Um, I'm going to borrow with what I use with, with the children, sometimes in red zone, this idea of what sort of questions that we can ask to provide context for us. And I love to use in red zone three, three questions. In what I'm reading, who is Jesus? In the light of who Jesus is, in what I'm reading, who am I? What does that make me? And then what does choosing a life with Jesus look like? So in Matthew, written for a Jewish audience, including over a hundred Old Testament quotes, as Matthew sets himself the challenge of convincing a Jewish readership that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, we see Jesus presented as the long-awaited Messiah. 
And Matthew, within the book of Matthew, goes on to make a case to the Jews that this is who we have been waiting for. So he begins by saying that Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David. And he announces the genealogy of Jesus, that Jesus is who we've been waiting for. He also looks to draw out Jesus as the new Moses and Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. And yet as the book of Matthew unfolds, we see through the gospel of Matthew that Jesus was accepted by many, rejected by others, and the indifferent group within the middle that weren't quite sure. And when we think about where am I in that? Is Jesus accepted by me? Is there aspects of Jesus rejected? Am I somewhere in the middle? How is this conflict for me going to be resolved? Within the book of Matthew, it's resolved by the end. But in the middle of the book of Matthew, there's this wrestle. People were expecting a Psalm 2 Messiah, a victorious deliverer. And yet the Messiah of Jesus isn't who they were expecting. So we see the wrestle with Jesus, even with the disciples, asking them, who do you say I am? And they still were wanting a king that would reign through military power. But Jesus came as a different kind of king. He came as the king to fulfill the Isaiah 53 prophecy that I am one who will suffer and die for the sins of my people. That Jesus is a king who reigns by becoming a servant. And in Matthew, and then repeated across the other gospels, we see the truth of an upside down kingdom. To follow the servant king, you must become a servant yourself. Jesus in Matthew exposes hypocrisy. He weeps over Jerusalem and their choice to reject him in God. And he weeps because what Jesus knows is how this story plays out. And if in the gospels, as we know, because we're beyond the gospels, we're between the gospels <laughs> and revelation. Jesus weeps because he knows that in rejecting Jesus, they were choosing a revolution against Rome and the destruction of their city. Jesus weeps because he said, here I am, I choose you, but they still could not choose him. And as we move in Matthew towards the crucifixion of Jesus, there are yet again that increased references to the Old Testament. As Matthew makes the case that the resurrection, the death of Jesus was not a tragedy, but a fulfillment of prophecy. And the resurrection in Matthew leads with the conclusion of a risen Jesus and the Great Commission, again reminding them, I will be with you, Emmanuel, the one that's with you. And then we go to the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark was a friend of the Apostle Peter. We sometimes like Mark because it's the shortest and the earliest gospel written to present Jesus to a Roman Empire that did not have, maybe, the knowledge and the training of the Jewish audience of Matthew's. And so we see in Peter a kind of a, a slightly different design to the story. And it announces right from the start that Jesus is good news. And Jesus is the Messiah of God. And then within Mark, we almost get the presentation of that drama in three acts. The first act, who is this Jesus? What does it mean for Jesus to be the messianic king? And then the paradox of what it means for Jesus to become that king. We see in Mark that God's rescue operation to the world is still in motion. God has not finished his narrative, his story, his desire to save the world. And we see in Mark confrontation and Jesus defeating evil, Jesus confronting it. 
and inviting his disciples, the people that he ministered to, to live with him. He demonstrated that the kingdom of Jesus was one that had healing and deliverance and shockingly the forgiveness of sins. And again, it presented people with the same choice. Will you follow him or will you reject him? Who do you say I am? Again, what do you choose? And again, because Jesus is who he is, he allows that choice to be ours. Now, I didn't realize this till I was getting ready for tonight um, about the two different endings to Mark. So in the um, original Mark, the original manuscripts of Mark, the end actually is after the resurrection, still with some of them in a place of disbelief. Some of the disciples actually not sure what they believe. And some accounts have, have gone to other scriptures and they've created an ending to Mark in which they do say yes to Jesus. They do believe in what they've seen. And he rebukes them for their unbelief and then commissions them. But the original leaves it on that cliffhanger. Yep, the, the teacher and me, the English teacher, we know that cliffhangers have that powerful anchor for a reader. Yet it's also the most frustrating way to end a story. It's frustrating because sometimes we want someone to tell us how it ends. We want the resolution given to us because then huh, we've got an ending. But Mark reminds us that actually that choice to believe or not is ours. And then we go to the Gospel of Luke. Um, the, again, seen as one of the earliest accounts, we know that Luke links to Acts. He was a doctor. He was a traveling companion with Paul. He wasn't Jewish, and he gathered and researched the eyewitness accounts and deliberately wanted to, again, make a case that Luke gives a gospel, sorry, that Jesus came for the marginalized. So his view of the Jesus or the presentation of Jesus is yet again another facet for his character, that Jesus was somebody who came for the marginalized, the children, the women, the poor and the Gentiles. And yet he still makes the case that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises from the Old Testament. And he shows us though that the kingdom that Jesus has come to rule and reign over is a reversal of all the commonly held social values of the time. And so we see in Luke an emphasis on the ways in which Jesus's um, life and ministry would fulfill the long covenant story of God in Israel and the story of God and the whole world. And it is in Luke that we see Jesus upon the cross who says, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they do. And as a gospel for the marginalized and the compassionate, we see Jesus turn to the, um, the thief, and say, today you will be with me in paradise. And as a gospel for the marginalized, we see Jesus' heart for his people. And as Jeff again spoke of this morning on the road to Emmaus, we see him take that time to use the scripture, the story of scripture to expound to them who he was. And he comes and he eats with them. And at the point of breaking bread, they suddenly recognize him. And it reminds us that sometimes we want to impose our own agenda, our own expectations on Jesus and how we want him to behave. <laughs> we want to determine the Jesus that we will say yes to. But the Jesus that broke bread with them, that brought a sudden revelation and their eyes was open, reminded them that he was the king of an upside down kingdom. But he was real and he was theirs and he had died for them that he was a king who would suffer 
and bring resurrection power back to his people. And at the end of Luke, it's um, a direction to wait in Jerusalem, to wait for the Holy Spirit, for that resurrection power that it brought Jesus back to life to be given to his people. And so we end Luke waiting for Acts to come. And then John, the book that embodies, again, my favourite, I suppose with the Gospels, can we have a favourite? I always think somebody said to me once, who would you be? And I always wanted to be John because I just wanted to lay my head upon Jesus's breast. <laughs> I just wanted to have that proximity, that intimacy that John has. And it's a story written so that we might come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And in the book of John, he makes that a clear um, intention. And he says within John... Um, that his desire is that people would see and believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name, that you might know that he is alive and real and can change your life forever. And so John, maybe this is, might be another reason it's my favourite, begins with a poem. And I love poetry. And he begins to use this poem form at the beginning where he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And he reminds us from the beginning of John that Jesus was there in the beginning of Genesis. That Jesus is not something that God suddenly decided at the point of gospels of the gospels we needed because this hadn't worked and this hadn't worked. Jesus was always God's plan A. Jesus was always God's best for us. And so the Jesus that we meet in John is the Jesus who says, I am the I am. And he is God incarnate. And he came and fulfilled the claims that he was fully human, the son of God, the messianic king, but also the teacher of Israel. Third reason maybe why it's my favorite, because he also comes in John as the rabbi, as the teacher. And then you get this beautiful unfolding in the book of John where Jesus performs a miraculous sign. And yet it creates misunderstanding and controversy. So again, the people, and, and for us, that choice we get to make, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And so, we get to see a Jesus in all four Gospels. Now, some people might be cynical and say, but these Gospels don't marry up. There's differences, there's discrepancies. But actually, those differences and those discrepancies strengthen the testimony and the testimony to Jesus of those. The mistakes remind us that we didn't have a group of four writers who colluded together and sat around a table and said, come on, guys, we need to get this right. Everything needs to be spot on. We need four exact versions of the life of Jesus. They actually remind us that the experience in the life of Jesus was seen through the eyewitness and the relationship of people that were close to him and then by years and by listening to other accounts impacted and yet with greater proximity. And yet across all four, they come back to this truth that Jesus is the king of an upside down kingdom, that Jesus comes as a demonstration of God's mercy and not his judgment that Jesus comes to be the suffering servant king who knew that when he gave up his majesty and divinity that he would not be protected from the pain of the cross. And yet he still said yes. 
And so for 400 years, from the end of Malachi to the arrival of the Gospels, we have a people who waited for Jesus. They waited desperately and hopefully. And I just think as we come towards a, a point maybe where we can reflect and, and just decide for ourselves that are we desperate? Are we hopeful? Where do we sit in the tension of this question? Who is this Jesus and who does it make me? Do you realize that we won't ever have to wait in a sense of desperation? Because we can wait with hope, yes, and desire, yes, and a joyful expectation of Jesus coming back. But we don't really need that desperation of the people at the end of the Old Testament because Jesus is here. The Gospels proclaim the good news of his arrival and he himself upon the cross proclaims that it is finished. It is finished. And yet sometimes we wait and we sometimes live like we're still waiting for something more, like maybe the truth of the Jesus of the Gospels, of God's beloved son becoming flesh and obedient to death upon the cross. That's not quite enough. You know, we wait thinking, Jesus, you gave up everything for me. You died for me. But, you know, I think I'm, I'm still maybe waiting for something more. Do you know who else thought like that, spoke like that? The Pharisees, the rich young rulers, the people in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. They beheld Jesus in all his glorious humanity, all his glorious meekness, face to face with his majesty, and they could not behold the truth. That the chief cornerstone, sorry, that the chief cornerstone, the one that they rejected, Jesus, is as good as it gets. Jesus, naked, despised, humiliated, a newborn baby, mewling, dependent, vulnerable, who grew in grace and favor. Twelve years old and in his father's house where his family found him. Jesus coming into a ministry where he would spit in mud and the eyes of blind, that he would hold onto the outcast and the leper, that he would eat and drink with the sick and with the sinners, that he would sit by wells with wrong women and look into trees for men with shortcomings. Jesus, gloriously transfigured, beautiful, magnificent, commander of the winds and storms and of demons and of devils, Raiser of the dead, prophet to the prophet, shepherd, evangelist, teacher, friend. He really is as good as it gets because he is God in his goodness, giving up everything so that we can become part of his story. And his story is one that takes us from glory to glory because when he said it was finished, there was nothing that we had to do. He did it all. And if this Jesus with his eyes of fire and the voice of rushing waters, keys to hell and Hades in his hand, if he's still not enough for you, then maybe go to a quiet place and go to your knees. Repent and open the door to your heart and let Holy Spirit in to soften and bend your will a little and your spirit to him. Look to find any lie that blocks your yes to this Jesus and your choice 
and make a decision today because this day, if you choose Jesus and if you let your yes be bigger than anything else, then your reasons not to. He still chooses you. And just gonna let us end there. So I had a little backup if I did run out of time and it might be a little bit early, so I'd love the band to come back up. And I just remember at the end of John, there are so many other things which Jesus did, which if they were not written one by one, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain all the books that were written. The invitation into Jesus's story is the invitation to write your part of it with him. And so I would just love to um, say, I'm, I know we don't have a prayer team or anything, but if you would pray, or if there's anything in that that you feel you just need to, to give Jesus your yes again, that you need to just remind him or yourself of everything he did for you, that you could say yes again to him. I really believe that he is big enough and glorious enough to just get hold of you and, and bring you close again because I'll say it once more, he chooses you. Do you choose him?